the power that really came came up is foods themselves. And that's what we did. We brought in 42 people. They all had migraines. They all had these pounding headaches. And we asked half of them to do nothing for the time being. We gave them actually a placebo. But the others made a diet change. And what we did was we eliminated the problem foods. And what we noticed is that the migraines dramatically reduced. And I will never forget, we had a, a law student who was one of the research subjects. She contacted me years later and said, you know what? I haven't had a migraine since. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 44 of season 4, number 239 overall. And today we are talking all about headaches, specifically migraines. You know, they can be debilitating. They can take you right out of your day and leave you unable to do even the simplest of things. And these migraines, they happen to a lot of us. According to some estimates, as many as 1 billion people worldwide will suffer from migraines. And here in the U.S., someone in one out of every four homes will get one. But they also appear more common among women. One out of five women will have a migraine compared to some estimates pegging that just one out of every 16 men. Now, we'll be talking more about the risk of migraines as we get older in just a little bit. I have some stats for you there as well. But what we're going to focus on to start today is a deeper understanding of what a migraine actually is and what we can do to prevent them. And for that, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Neil Barnard back to this show. You know, Dr. Barnard has done extensive research on the connection between diet and migraines, helping to prove that in many cases, food can be the trigger for these blinding episodes. So he and I are going to talk about the findings from his research and kind of play red light, green light when it comes to food and migraines. What are the foods that you may want to stop eating? What are the common triggers? And then what are the ones that you can keep on eating? The safe foods. We'll be getting into that in just a minute. Also today, the incredible story of a woman who goes by the name of Plant Fit Meg. Now, Meg is a regular in the chat room during the exam room live on YouTube, and she's also a budding social media star and someone who is living proof that a will to live and a determination to change can make a world of difference. You see, Meg was someone who was in pain every single day day of her life. She had very little energy, she was tired all the time, and at one point was significantly overweight. And on top of that, she also had cancer. But if you notice, all of that was said in the past tense. Because then came the change. Meg became Plant Fit Meg. And her pain vanished. Her energy went through the roof. The weight came pouring off. And now today she is thriving. She is inspiring others and showing that change is possible. Healthy change. 
even in the most dire of circumstances. Her story is coming up, but today we begin with Dr. Barnard, migraines and the foods that can help. Let's talk about headaches here on the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee and not just any headache. We're talking about the mother of all headaches. Today, we are going to be talking about migraine headaches, what exactly they are, and then how your diet may be affecting whether or not your head is pounding or not. And so we have a gentleman with us here today who knows all about this. Matter of fact, did a comprehensive study on this very topic not too terribly long ago. And with that, we welcome Dr. Neil Barnard back to the exam room. Thank you so very much for being here, sir. Hi, Chuck. Great to be with you. Let's start with the surface level question. What is a migraine and how does it compare to those day-to-day headaches that we all get? Great question. A migraine is not just a bad headache. Um, A typical tension headache that a lot of folks get is a dull ache. It lasts an hour or two. It's gone. That's that's about it. Now, it can be intense, but what differentiates a migraine is that migraines are usually one-sided. They're often pounding and throbbing with your pulse. And along with it, you get lots of other things too. You're really sensitive to lights and to sounds. And sometimes you'll feel sick. You might even actually throw up. So it's, it's a whole physical thing uh, as opposed to just uh, a tension headache. Some people will get an aura beforehand. Not everybody, but sometimes you'll see changes in your vision that will warn you that the migraine is about to hit. And we talk a lot about chronic illness here on the show. Is there any research showing whether or not migraines can be genetic at all? Uh, they, They can be. And they can also strike at any time of life, unlike so many conditions where you've got to kind of be middle aged before it to happen. Uh, You'll see them in kids. And I have to tell you, Chuck, there is nothing sadder than a kid who's got a migraine because they last a long time. They can last overnight the next day. These kids aren't in school. Um, They're just waiting in the dark. And, And what they're hoping for is that if they will fall asleep, Sometimes the sleep will arrest the migraine and then they can function again. But there are kids who have them uh, a few times a week and it can be just really debilitating. I remember, Dr. Barnard, at a young age, there was a member of my family who suffered just tremendously with migraine headaches and they actually had a shot that they would give themselves. They kept it in the refrigerator. I guess it was a it was a pain shot. I was pretty young at that time, but they would literally have to go to their bedroom, give themselves the shot and just lay down. And that was it for the day. They were just crippled, um, it seemed. And I'm assuming the shot because really no amount of Tylenol is going to help these things. Um, well, that's another um problem with migraines is that you take an aspirin, you take a a Tylenol, you take an ibuprofen, and a whole lot of nothing happens. Um, And often when uh, people go to the emergency room with their headache, the interns and residents, the the ones who are kind of new to medical practice, treat them with skepticism because they read a magazine somewhere that said that people will feign migraines in order to get narcotics. So the poor headache sufferer is waiting in the, 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 um, emergency room, waiting room, getting no help at all, being looked at with suspicion when they just want this air hammer in their head to stop. Mm. And this is a fairly common condition, correct? It is. It is very, very very common. Um, And for some people, it it occurs at certain times 
uh, in their lives. Uh, for women during their reproductive years, they will sometimes occur premenstrually. Um, that's the bad news. But the good news is that this gives us clues as to what we can do about it. And so researchers have looked at what are the triggers. It can be the time of the month, but it can also be what you ate. And so once people started realizing that, they started putting it to the test, uh, including our team, and finding that some people can actually become totally free of their migraines. Let's talk about that diet component, because that really does not get talked about all that often when it comes to migraine headaches. You, you think about food, you think about belly aches, you think about some of the other conditions we talk about on the show, but rarely do you associate that with a migraine. Nonetheless, you and a team of researchers, I believe it was in 2014, looked at this specifically. What all did you discover? Yes, that, that's exactly right. Um, the history of all this really started with not exactly foods that people would make in their meals, but certain additions like ginger. Ginger seems to reduce migraines a little bit. Um, in other words, if you have ginger in your foods, it makes them less common. And then there's, there's an herb called feverfew. It's spelled just like it sounds. Uh, it's an old, old, old part of, of kind of folk medicine. It was used to reduce fever fever few. Uh, but researchers found that it does indeed help reduce migraines. You don't take it when you've got the migraine, you take it daily all the time, and it makes migraines less likely to happen. So that was all good. But the, the, the power that really came, came up is foods themselves. And that's what we did. We brought in 42 people. They all had migraines. They all had these pounding headaches. Um, and we asked half of them to do nothing for the time being. We gave them actually a placebo. But the others were made a diet change. And what we did was we eliminated the problem foods. I'm going to tell you what they are. And what we noticed is that the migraines uh, dramatically reduced. And I will never forget, we had a, a law student who was one of the research subjects. And she was saying how she would be at, at, in the law library and she'd be studying and reading and then a migraine would hit and that was it. It was as if you could just unplug her brain and, and the day was shot after that. She couldn't do anything. Um, after being in our study, she contacted me years later and said, you know what? Haven't had a migraine since. So um, the, the key here is to know the list of foods to avoid and to avoid them. And, and there's a certain way that you can identify which foods really matter for you. And what is that way? Is it just kind of a matter of trial and error? Is it different for everyone? Or is there really just kind of a specific group of foods that are, I guess, common triggers? Yeah, um, you have to go through it kind of systematically because you want to see what your trigger food is, and you might have more than one. So what we did in this study, and I would encourage other migraine sufferers to, to do, is take four weeks. During this four-week period, no animal products at all. When you do that, you're eliminating dairy, which is at the top of just about everybody's migraine list. But by the way, it does not have to be fermented dairy, uh, it, it, or it doesn't have to be an aged cheese. Even skim milk for some people will trigger their migraines. So vegan diet has no dairy, got no meat, has no eggs. Those are common triggers. If that knocks out your migraine, your migraines, you're done. There's nothing else you have to do. But after four weeks, if you still have some migraines, then phase two is to eliminate a dozen additional foods that for some people are migraine triggers. Okay, so here's, here's my list of dozen, uh, and some of which are already gone on the vegan diet. Dairy products, chocolate, citrus, eggs, uh, meat, wheat, nuts, tomatoes, onions, corn, 
apples and bananas. Uh, now, bananas, apples, they're healthy foods. There's nothing wrong with them for most people. But if you are, say, allergic to strawberries, you just can't have strawberries. And, and if my, uh, bananas or apples trigger your migraines, you can't have them. So here's what, here's what you do. Um, take all those foods out of your diet, uh, in addition to being vegan. Take all those foods out so you're not going to have any apples or citrus or whatever. Then if your migraines really go down, which for most people they do, they might completely disappear. The question now is, which food was the responsible one? So bring them back, but one at a time. Bring in bananas. That's the bottom of the list. And have four or five bananas in a day. This is just to test. If that doesn't trigger a migraine, then you can keep bananas in your diet because they're not guilty. Then add apples. Have two or three of them in a day, and same thing the next day. If that doesn't trigger a migraine, keep the apples. And then you go up to the next one, which might be corn or onions or tomatoes. And you're adding them back, one food every two days in a generous quantity. If you get a migraine, stop. Take that food out and don't bring it back until the study, until your test study is over. And you work your way through the list. And what you will find is that you have at least one trigger, maybe two, maybe three, and you've got to avoid them all. And uh, you will see over time uh, that they are triggers for you. What kind of feedback did you get from the study participants as far as them eliminating these foods and going through that elimination period of the diet? And did they find it difficult? Did they find it exciting? Was it easy for them? Um, well, the overall feeling is that it's, it's easier than they thought. Um, we hear this all the time with uh, research participants who imagine a vegan diet is going to be tough and whatever. Um, that's really not so tough. The elimination part is tougher than vegan. Because among the triggers are pretty common foods like, like wheat products. So suddenly your wheat p- uh, pizza crust is gone, your spaghetti is gone. So, so, so that is more, more punishing. Uh, but it's also short term. You're just doing it to see what your triggers are. And most people consider it really very um, empowering, I would have to say. But Chuck, I, I got to tell you that many of the people will say, that the foods that were their triggers were also foods that they had craved. Um, For whatever reason, their favorite food, uh, chocolate, ice cream, uh, was, was, was turned out to be a a problem food for them. So that's uh, a learning experience. Then you can just decide, do you want to have your head hurt or do you want to find a good substitute for it? Um, A couple of things I I didn't mention there, there are drinks that can also be part of it. Uh, Every migraine sufferer knows that that glass of red wine is going to hammer their head um, so many of them will avoid alcohol completely. Um, MSG uh, also uh, can affect, uh, it can trigger migraines and cause other kinds of headaches for other people too. How did you and the group of researchers come up with this list of foods that you wanted to use in this study? Were these common triggers for other conditions or were you operating off of a hypothesis? We were, we were really operating off of a hypothesis that was generated by prior research. And what we did is we looked at every study that had ever been done identifying triggers. And in, and I have to tell you, the past research was um, not always the highest quality. And you would see people saying, well, I think uh, citrus is a trigger. I think tomatoes. But we took every study ever done. And we looked not only at um, migraine, but we looked at other inflammatory conditions, too, like rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, dermatologic diseases, other things where inflammation seemed to be triggered by foods. And we just put them in a list of how often they were indicted. 
And that's why dairy came to the top of the list. Um, and as time goes on, the more you study it, you'll discover that some people um, really do have uh, these triggers and it's empowering for them to eliminate it. Uh, let me flip the coin, though, uh, to the other side, though, Chuck, because there are some foods that I would call pain safe, meaning you can eat them all day long. They're never going to trigger a migraine. Rice, especially brown rice. Vegetables, if they are cooked. So uh, green, yellow, orange vegetables, cook them. So broccoli and sweet potatoes, fine, eat them all day long. Uh, fruits, uh, most people don't like to cook their fruits, but the cooking process seems to knock out the antigens that could trigger a migraine. So during the elimination phase, have all the rice you want, have all the vegetables you want, have all the fruits you want, but have them be cooked and have your beverage be water and see how you do. So basically for apples, for example, uh, if you wanted to have a baked apple, but an apple was actually one of your triggers, you're less likely to have a migraine if said apple was in fact baked. For many people, that's exactly what they'll experience. Um, and that can, that can be with many, many things. Um, a potato. Um, for most people, potatoes are no problem whatsoever. They're fine with them. But there are people who have a little inflammation from potatoes, and then they discover the more the potato is cooked, the less they react to it. So the cooking process can, can knock things out. You mentioned the word antigen uh, being the trigger here. Can you talk to us a little bit more in depth about what you mean by that? Yeah, an antigen is a protein. And uh, bacteria, viruses, they have proteins. And people, you hear about this now with the pandemic, that our immune system responds to proteins, to antigens um, that, are, that come into our body uh, on the surface of a virus, bacterium, um, uh, any kind of invader. And uh, foods present antigens as well. Now, because human beings have evolved over many, 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 many millennia, um, eating foods and getting the nutrients out of them, our immune systems say, don't worry. You know, that's, uh, that's a grape. We eat grapes around here, no problem. Don't react to it. Um, but then if it's something new and, and uh, different, then we are more likely to react. And interestingly enough, um, if you look at the list of foods, they are often things that humans did not evolve with. The, the trigger foods, chocolate, for example. Chocolate was not a product of Switzerland. Chocolate is a, a new world product. The same with tomatoes, same with corn. Um, and human beings began their sojourn in Africa. And once human beings then worked their way around to get to the, the so-called new world, uh, North and South America, that was the first time that people really had access to corn and tomatoes and chocolate. And maybe not surprisingly, some of us still react to those things. Chocolate's a biggie, though. Of those 42 yeah. adults, though, I would imagine that when that came up as a probable trigger food, there were a couple of hearts that broke in that group, right? Um, yeah, but keep in mind one thing. Um, when many people have chocolate, they're not just having chocolate. Um, look at the label of your Kit Kat bar uh, or something like that. Uh, right up there <laughs> near the top of the ingredients is milk. And the milk proteins are suspect number one for anybody's migraines. So they may be reacting to the chocolate, but they may also be reacting to the milk. And you can separate those out by simply having some completely dairy-free chocolate and seeing if you react to that or not. And 
I guess I'm just curious why something I, I would think that you're looking at foods that are on the avoid list and the safe list. I see pears are on the safe list and we will link off to the full list for you. Just look in the episode notes or in the show description. Why a pear would be safe when it's so close, it seems to be an apple. Were there some things like that that surprised you in the results? Uh, Chuck, you're really putting your finger on such a cool thing. Um, there are whole botanical families. And you're right, an apple is very similar to a pear. And so normally, or kind of in the same way as garlic, onions, shallots, they're all kind of a family. Um, so normally we figure if there's one member of the family that's a problem, the others might be a problem too. So I, I think we want to keep an open mind about these things. It could be that pears have been let off the hook and that they could trigger migraines for some people. Or it could be that apples were actually falsely accused and that maybe with bigger studies they would work their way out. The problem is that the research community has been studying pharmaceuticals that can be sold um, and hasn't been studying so much the things that people can do at home. So this area has been neglected, unfortunately. And really quickly here, as we wrap up this segment, I also see on the avoid list in the study, you have both coffee and tea. Is that a product of the caffeine or something else contained in either the leaf or the bean? I think it's the latter. Um, I, I, I think it's the antigens that are in it. Interestingly enough, caffeine itself is often a painkiller. And if, if you've got a migraine that is just announcing itself, if you run into the kitchen and brew yourself the most, the strongest black coffee you can get and have one or two cups of that pretty quickly without the dairy, <laughs> the dairy creamer, um, for many people, the caffeine will actually knock their migraine out. So caffeine is a little double-edged. People who tend to have caffeine in their or caffeinated beverages tend to have more migraines. For some people, the the constituents of the coffee can be a trigger, but the caffeine itself is uh, very often a painkiller. And if you look at painkillers at the drugstore, many of them actually add caffeine because it potentiates the painkilling effect. Uh, by the way, uh, Chuck, let me mention just one other thing that, that I should have mentioned earlier. For those women who have migraines during the pre-menstrual period, it's your period's about to arrive and that headache goes bang, it just comes in. Um, for many, many women, we see that diet changes can help them. And I suspect, I can't prove this, but I suspect that in the same way as we have been using very low fat, high fiber vegan diets to calm down the hormone roller coaster. In other words, with a lot of fiber in your diet and by minimizing fat, the estrogen changes are not so dramatic. You don't see this huge rise in big troughs. It's, it's evened out a little bit more. And that re reduces menstrual pain, PMS symptoms, and we believe it will also help women to avoid their premenstrual migraines. But that, that has yet to be proved. But, but uh, you don't have to wait for the scientific studies. If you want to try it, go ahead and give it, give it a go. Well, you just mentioned fiber and fat, so let's close with this. Uh, what is something that does not have any fiber but has a ton of fat in it? Meat, of course. We haven't <laughs> talked about that just yet. Were you able to look at what effect eating red meat or chicken or pork has on migraines? Um, all of those foods have exactly the effect that, that, that you mentioned. They, they don't have any fiber in them. They're loaded with fat. They, they, they drive up these hormonal um, shifts in a very bad way, plus those antigens, um, the antigens, the, the proteins that are in meat 
for some people appear to be migraine triggers for them. And that can be true for chicken, true for fish, true for any animal protein. And, and frankly, it's true for eggs and, and the, the proteins in dairy as well. Some more facts now on migraines as we wrap up our conversation. And they do appear to become less frequent as we grow older. Check this out. According to the CDC, one out of four women between the ages of 18 and 44 reported having a splitting headache or a migraine at one point or another during the last three months. And for women between the ages of 45 and 64, that number drops to one out of every five. And then to about one out of every 10 for ages 65 to 74, and fewer still for women who are over the age of 75. And for men, in virtually every single age bracket, they were only about half as likely to have a migraine. Now, a separate study that was published in The Lancet found that almost 3 billion people worldwide would have a migraine or a tension-type headache in 2016. And once again, researchers found that younger women were the most likely to suffer from one. And when this show first aired over on our YouTube channel, a number of people who were watching it in the chat talked about how changing their diet was able to help. They really did find some relief by changing what it was that they were eating. But is it the cure-all? Well, no, not in every case, but it did help quite a bit. Essentially, anecdotally, backing up Dr. Barnard's study. And you can find a link to that study and the Physicians Committee's tips for migraines in the episode notes. Let's move on now and get inspired. You know, you all... You all are just incredible. I so adore having the opportunity to get to know those of you who listen or watch the exam room. Your stories are amazing. And one such listener really caught my eye. Meg. Meg is a regular in the chat room during the exam room live over on YouTube. She's one of the regular roomies, as I like to call them, who hangs out with us. And her story is so inspiring. I mean, just so inspiring. Because anyone who has successfully battled cancer, lost weight, and went from being tired all of the time to having more energy than ever is certainly someone that we should all be looking up to. I know that I do. And that's why it was a privilege to have her on the show to share her remarkable journey with us. And her transformation to become... Plant Fit Meg. Today's guest is somebody who is a regular with our live shows on Facebook and on YouTube. And I had no idea that this person had a remarkable story of their own until they shared just an itty bitty sliver of it in the chat room one day. And we all kind of caught wind. The, the exam roomies who watch along caught wind of this. I saw it. And then I went and I clicked over on her YouTube channel and was just 
blown away. You want to talk about a night and day transformation. This is it, my friend. And that is why I am so super excited to welcome Plant Fit Meg to the exam room. Meg, thank you so very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited because you have quite, quite the story to tell. You have lost 80 pounds and have completely transformed your health. And to look at you today, you would have no idea that you ever had to battle uh, your obesity demons. Yeah, it's true. You never know looking at someone where they've been and where they've come from, what they've dealt with. And yeah, I was 80 pounds heavier and dealing with a lot of health issues for sure. Let's talk about your story. I do love a good story, and I think that this is going to be a fantastic one. Um, Let's talk about this. So at your heaviest, uh, how much were you weighing at that point? Uh, About 220 pounds when I started this weight loss journey. I had been heavier in the past, but had kind of yo-yoed up and down and all around. Um, So this latest last weight loss journey, health journey, I was about 220. I love the fact that you re- refer to it as the last, because yes, I think that once you, once you, yeah, <laughs> you, you reach this and you kind of discover, you know, how to do things right. Mm-hmm. You really do realize that, Hey, it's, it's time to break out the scissors and cut the string on that yo-yo because there's not going to be any more up and down with, with your weight here. Um, let's talk about how it was though, that you got up to 220. You mentioned that you would yo-yo dieted, but is weight something that you had struggled with, uh, for a lot of your life? Um, I think it started in my late teens, um, being stressed about uh, getting into college and figuring out what I want to do with my life and having that kind of stress. And then gaining the f- freshman 15, which was more like the freshman 20 for me, and um, just kind of gradually gaining weight, losing a bit gaining more. And the trend was just kind of upwards as I went through my 20s. Um, I'm also a cancer survivor. I was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 20. So I dealt with that. And I went through conventional treatment for that because I had no idea that diet played a role at all. So obviously, that was very stressful. And um, when that was done and dealt with, and I was cancer free, I just wanted to move on with life and forget that it ever happened and just move forward. And uh, 10 years later, I found a plant-based diet and lifestyle, and I haven't looked back since. Well, I'm I'm super glad uh, that you were able to make it through the other side of that cancer diagnosis. What form of cancer was it, if you don't mind my asking? I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I had a couple of surgeries and chemotherapy. And yeah, I've been cancer free for almost 15 years now. What was that process like for you? I've had a number of cancer survivors on the show. And for each of them, the the story is a little bit different. How was that process for you? It was really scary for me. I was only 20 years old. I was in university. I was still living at home with my parents. And it was very unexpected. Uh, Ovarian cancer usually strikes uh, people when they're older, um, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, later later in life. Um, so it was very shocking. I was told that I had a cyst that needed to be removed and, oh, put it in your five-year plan. It's not a big deal. And 
I was one in a million, you know, that it turned out that it was cancerous. And um, so, yeah, dealing with that was really challenging. Um, At the time, I felt like it was just down to my genetics and bad luck. And now I know that diet plays a role and it's not to place blame on myself for my cancer diagnosis, but it's to be empowered that I can reduce my future risk and um, be healthy and hopefully have a longevity. You know, a plant-based diet is not a panacea, but it will definitely reduce my risk for future diseases and cancer and heart disease and other diseases as well. Isn't that kind of the cool thing about the diet? You're right. It, it's it's not a cure-all, but yeah. it does check an awful lot of boxes as far as lowering the risk, you know, whether mm-hmm. it is of cancer or heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, you know, you name it. I mean, we've covered so many of these on the show and so many new studies seem to come out every single year that all point in, in this same direction. And it's really just uh very promising. But um let's go back to when it uh when you were going through treatment. Um Obviously, you weren't too familiar yet with the idea of a plant-based diet, if at all, at that point. So what were the kind of foods that you were gravitating to? Were you going toward comfort foods that were part of that standard Western diet still, or were you trying to eat a little bit healthier? I'd say it was a mix of both. I would try... I Historically, I've always kind of gone back and forth where it's like, I try to be healthy, I try to do what I I think is healthful. And at the time, it was, you know, eating salmon and uh, rice and, you know, a little bit of vegetable, but not not a ton. Um, And then I'd kind of go to the other side of things where I would definitely seek comfort in food as well. And when you're sick, people bring you food to help comfort you and to, you know, people know that I love chocolate. So I I was gifted a lot of, you know, Ferrero Rochers and (laughs) chocolate and (laughs) things, goodies, and which was lovely. And people were so caring and um, it was nice to have people visit. And, but, you know, you're, you're sitting still, you're not able to exercise or move your body, really, you're recovering. And uh, I definitely packed on the pounds after that as well. Were you active at all um, before this diagnosis, before you had to be, or you were sedentary a little bit? Yeah, I've always been fairly active. I danced as a kid and I was a dance teacher. Um, I guess I started teaching dance after after cancer, but um, yeah, I've, I've danced and uh, I was always fairly, fairly active, I would say. Yeah. And um, let's talk about that transition in between uh, when uh, you you were able to get clear of the cancer, which, by the way, that had to have been a heck of a day when the doctors told you you were fully in remission. Absolutely. When they tell you you're cancer free, it's like you won the lottery. And I was one in a million to have the diagnosis and to be told that, you know, there are cancer cells in this cyst and they've spread around a little and we need to do another surgery. And then it was like, okay, I'm one in a million again. I'm cancer free. So yeah, it was really exciting. So coming out that other side with that one in a million, um, you probably felt like you needed to make the most of the the time. Like maybe you even felt like this was bonus time where you're getting a second chance at a lot of things. Yeah, I was really young. I was 20. So at the time I 
I was obviously very thankful and so thrilled to be cancer free and not be sick anymore. But at the same time, I just kind of put blinders on and I just wanted to forget it ever happened completely. I just wanted to just close that chapter and pretend like it never existed and just go back to whatever I was doing previously in my life as a university student and uh, with my friends and my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband and all that. Uh, Okay. Well, oh, a good love story. All right. Well, we'll touch on that too. Um, So you say that you wanted to go back to the way that you had been doing things. Basically, you just wanted your life back. Um, Did at, at that point, it still didn't click that maybe diet or lifestyle had played a role in um, in the diagnosis in the first place. Not to say that that's 100% what caused this, but there may be a chance that it did anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had no comprehension of that whatsoever. It didn't occur to me at all when I asked doctors and oncologists, you know, why, why me? Why, why do I have cancer? What's going on? You know, I was told that these things happen and it's down to genetics and it just it just happens to people and i didn't have an explanation that went into lifestyle or diet at all and i had no comprehension of that at all until a decade later <laughs> but you've mentioned genetics a few times is this something that runs in your family yeah my dad actually is also a cancer survivor he had colon cancer uh so yeah Okay. Um, and so the, the 10 years in between, um, let's talk about some of the yo-yo dieting, uh, attempts here or the other attempts that you made to, uh, lose weight here, because I think anybody who's ever lost weight typically has that roller coaster ride until they finally get it figured out. So let's talk about some of those ups and downs that come along with that. How many different diet programs did you try over the next decade? I wasn't big on diet plans or diet um, programs and things like that. I had seen my mom do like Weight Watchers and things like that. But the idea of counting calories or tracking things was just not appealing to me at all. I was like, how, why? Like, it just never made sense to me. And so I would try to cut down on carbs. I love carbs for the record, but <laughs> in the past I didn't. And so, yeah, I would try to cut back on carbs, cut down my portion sizes. So I was just eating less food and less calories and um, try to stay, I tried to stay away from processed stuff, but I think in restricting my calories and over-exercising, then you go to the other side and you start overeating on things that are not good for you and overeating on the processed food and the candies and sweets and stuff like that. Yeah. How difficult was it for you to restrict those calories? Did you go to bed at nights feeling hungry or even have that hangry feeling from time to time? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I definitely had those moments where I was just cutting back so much in an attempt to lose weight. And I thought I was doing it in a healthy way at the time too. So I was just very misguided and thought, oh, this is just how, this is just the suffering you have to go through to lose weight when you're in a larger body. And uh, yeah, I didn't learn, learn more about how to do it properly until much later. 
what kind of foods were you gravitating to? You said like you, you didn't eat a whole lot of carbs then, but you, you, you love carbs now. So were you skewing, if you had to say that it was close to any sort of diet out there, were you more on that Atkins or keto kick where it's high protein, low carb? Mm, I'd say it was probably more of a paleo ish style. If anything. Um, yeah, I just, I would cut out any breads and I'd just eat like really tiny portions. If I, if I was eating carbs, like if I was eating rice or something like that, it would just be a really teeny tiny, like almost nothing on my plate. And then, yeah, it would be vegetables and meat. Gotcha. Essentially. So how many times would you estimate that, uh, you would lose weight and then pack it, uh, back on? Too many to count, Chuck. Yeah, Too many yeah, to count. I, I don't know. I hear you. I hear <laughs> That's you. an excellent question, but I really don't. That's an excellent answer. It doesn't get much more honest than that. Yeah. Um, so here's here's why I asked that, right? Because in my experience, when I had attempted to get healthy until things finally fell into place, I would always slip up and and, and it all went back to like I thought I had it under control. I thought I could have just one nacho or, you know, uh, one slice of pizza, whatever the case may be. And I would be fine, but inevitably that would completely derail my progress. And I would just fall off of the food wagon. What was it for you that caused you to kind of slip up and return to those unhealthy habits? I think for me, it was convenience in the past. I didn't like cooking. I wanted to stay out of the kitchen. I just had no desire to spend any time there at all. So I think for me, it was very much convenience and also just the pleasure trap. You know, we're eating the standard American diet and it's highly addictive. And it's, you know, these foods are created so that you will eat them and overeat them and continue to eat them and want them. And uh, it just it does snowball, like you said, you know, one piece of pizza can often turn into, you know, many more plus ice cream, plus all these other things. What what were your go to's um, when you would uh, indulge, as it were? We were big on ordering pizza, for sure. Mm. That was a really big one. McDonald's was a big one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Man, those 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 are the toughies. Um, Yeah. What let's talk uh, seriously about the emotions that come with uh, the attempts to get healthy and then the failure and then the attempt again and then the failure again. And then ultimately you, you have success and it's fantastic. But what was that roller coaster like for you emotionally, not just the physical part, but talk about the emotional toll that it took for you? It's really challenging because you get to a point where you feel like you have it under control and you're doing something healthful for yourself and um, you feel good. And it's like, yeah, I got this. And you get a little momentum and you feel like you have it. And then inevitably there's a slip and a fall. And instead of picking myself back up and dusting myself off and getting back on track, it was just, you know, I'd fall off the wagon and it would just... I'd keep falling off the wagon and just making my situation worse and feeling really down on myself and really, really terrible and just not having self-esteem or confidence uh, that I could do it or that it was even possible to lose weight or to get healthy. 
yeah, sometimes it would get really quite dark, honestly, that I could even make a change and uh, turn things around. Yeah. Uh, you you just hit the nail on the head. I think that there are probably thousands of people who are hearing this right now who are probably like, yep, I know exactly the place that she's talking about right now. Um, how though, when you were in those dark places, how were you able to pull yourself up and, and get that motivation to give it another go? I think it took time. I think um, sometimes being so down and feeling so upset about it, it's so easy to just say, screw it. I'm just, I give up. I'm, I'm just going to be fat forever. I'm just going to be unhealthy forever. And this is my lot in life. And going back to the whole genetics thing and thinking that, you know, this is just the way things are. This is just, this is my life. And I just have to deal with it and suffer through. And uh, to turn it around, I think it takes a shift in mindset and it takes time to come around to changing your mindset into one of positivity and one of, yes, I can do this. I have control. I have power over my destiny. And it's not always going to be easy, but I can make it work and I can figure it out. Ooh, that is very well said. Very well said. <laughs> um, do your parents struggle with their weight as well? My mom has always struggled with her weight for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the fun stuff here. Let's talk about how Meg became, became plant fit Meg. Um, so you're, you're doing this whole yo-yo dieting, the roller coaster cycle here for a number of years after you, you've gotten cleared of cancer. Um, when did the whole idea of eating plant-based first pop up on your radar? Yeah, so about five years ago, I had been cancer free for a decade. And I was a new mom, my son was four months old at the time. And so with the combination of being cancer free for a decade, and also having our four month old and trying to decide how are we going to feed him? Like, what are his first foods going to be? What is his diet going to look like long term? And how are we going to have the energy and have longevity? And um, be able to eat in such a way that models good behavior for him. So I started, I went on to Google <laughs> and I started looking, you know, what's the healthiest diet? Like how, how do people eat, you know, the most healthfully and plant-based diets popped up I'm like, Hmm, plant-based. Interesting. And I went down the rabbit hole, you know, I did a lot of research, I watched a bunch of documentaries, I watched Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead, Forks Over Knives, Cowspiracy, I watched Earthlings, and I decided overnight to switch my diet completely and my lifestyle and to go vegan and to eat a plant-based diet. All right. So you go overnight. You're clearly motivated to do that if you're going to make the switch just like that. But were you really, did you have any reservations about this? Was there any skepticism, even though at this point you had been pretty deep down that rabbit hole? Yeah. So I, I love to research things. So I went into research mode and reading. I love to read. So I got into the China study how Not to Die had come out right around that time. So I, I read How Not to Die and dug into that. I actually got to see Dr. Greger speak live, which was really cool. 
And um, I went to a conference a few months into my plant-based journey. Um, it was Remedy Food Project Toronto, which was really cool. I got to see a lot of really amazing people speak, like uh, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Chef AJ, Brenda Davis, Garth Davis. Like it was just, it was crazy. There were so many people there that I admired and that I, you know, had done the research and watched these people talk, do talks online and watched YouTube videos. And um, so when I first made the decision, I did have reservations about how I would make it work because I didn't like cooking. I didn't really like vegetables. I was like, what am I going to eat? This is scary. But at the same time, I felt really strongly that I wanted to do this and do my best and try to make it work. So I I did. And I started with a five-day juice fast to kind of reset my taste buds. And I don't recommend that for everybody. I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't think it's necessary. But that's how I got started. And then I switched to a plant-based diet from there. And so you have a, a newborn son, four months old at that point, mm-hmm. I, I believe. And then uh, clearly you're married as well. Was your husband all on board with this too? No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. He was like, were you, you want to do what? You want to go vegan? Yep. yep really? Yep, yep. Are you sure? Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, that was interesting. He, he was confused. I think. And um, he knows that I like to go into research mode and that I, you know, read and do all these things. So I took him through why it would be the most healthful for our family. But more importantly for me at the time was to explain to him that it was the most healthful way to feed our son and to give him a good start in life and to have him be as healthy as possible and so he agreed that we would feed our son Riordan a fully plant-based diet. So that was a win. I was really pleased that we could agree on that. And then I made the decision, you know, for myself that I would eat a plant-based diet. And he was not on board in the beginning. Um, he, we didn't eat meat at the house. We didn't have meat in the house. But when he was out and about, he would, you know, eat whatever he wanted. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting because initially he was not not on board at all. But over time, he came around and I'd say about four to six months in, he also made the switch and we've been a plant based family ever since. Now, you mentioned uh, your son there again, and the, and the motivation was what was the healthiest diet to feed him? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that got me to thinking when I was popping around on your YouTube channel the other day, one of the videos that I saw, you said something to the effect of you initially did not set out to lose weight. You set out to get healthy. Weight loss was not the primary goal. Was the health of your son really that prime motivation then to make this switch? Would you say it was him above all else? Um, overall, I would say it was probably him. Yeah, that was sort of the top, top priority, I guess I would say. But secondarily and close linked to that was me not wanting to get cancer again and mm. realizing, oh, I might have control over this. Mm. Like, huh, that, that got me thinking. And I also had other health issues. So I dealt with asthma, endometriosis. I had chronic pain and chronic fatigue that would flare up and go away and it was undiagnosed and really distressing. 
Um, so in an effort to heal from those issues as well, that was another big reason why I made the switch. And you weren't really big on cooking at the beginning. So I think a lot of people may get tripped up by that. And they're like, oh my gosh, I have to spend how much time in the kitchen? I don't even know how to boil water. I could never do this. But you put in the time, the effort, the energy to learn how to do this. So what was that like for you as you built up your culinary knowledge? There was definitely a learning curve there for sure. But there are so many ways to make it easy and make it simple and not need to spend a ton of time in the kitchen. I kept it really, really basic in the beginning. I was like, okay, what do I already eat that's already vegan, that's already plant-based? Oats, cereals, you know, breads, whole wheat bread, things like that. Um, and smoothies. I love smoothies. So that was a, that was a good one. And then from there, it was, okay, how do I make things plant-based that are not plant-based in my diet, but that I really love and enjoy and are easy to throw together? So if anyone has watched my channel, you'll have heard me talk about eating so much chili and pasta in the start of my journey. Uh, and those were kind of my two go-to easy meals that I could just throw together. And I just omitted the animal product and I'd add beans and I was good to go. Oh, that's such a good tip too. Um, when I made the switch, my wife and I used to love this pumpkin chili, but it called mm -hmm. for ground meat. And just as you said, I mean, you substitute the beans instead of the, the meat. And man, I mean, it tastes even better to me. It tastes mm -hmm. more clean and uh, certainly a lot more fiber and a lot more health benefits to go with it. So that's actually a really good tip that you gave is that when somebody makes this transition, they don't have to give up their favorites. There are plenty of ways to still get them on the plate just in a more healthful fashion, wouldn't you say? Definitely. And I was someone who was kind of a picky eater. I didn't lo love vegetables. And I was, I would say I was a little picky. And so yeah, it was um, keeping things really simple in the beginning and just not being too uh, fretful about creating a whole new repertoire of recipes in the beginning, but just making small little tweaks to recipes that I already had, that were just really easy to do, and then expanding and growing from there and uh, incorporating different vegetables, different beans, different grains. And now it's like a whole new world has opened up to me because it's been five years. And uh, obviously, my diet has changed a lot from the start of my plant based journey to now. And yeah, but getting started, just keep it simple, keep frozen veggies on hand keep, you know, make big batches of things that you can keep in the fridge, keep in the freezer and you're prepped and ready to go. Oh, I don't care if you're just getting started or you're five or years now. in. Yeah. Making big <laughs> batches of stuff is just the way to go. No, no question about it. Mm -hmm. um, how has your relationship with vegetables evolved over these five years? You didn't like them at the start, but how do you feel about them today? I love veggies. Eat your veggies. <laughs> Give me your favorites. Oh my goodness. Potatoes, what? broccoli, Brussels sprouts, sweet potatoes. Yeah. Probably my top, 
top four. <laughs> and I, I, I would assume that your son does not have that typical child vegetable relationship where eh, Brussels sprouts push him away and, and just never to be seen again. Uh, is he one of those kids that just can't get enough veggies? He loves vegetables. Yeah. He, he sings songs about vegetables. <laughs> he, yeah. He's hilarious. Yeah. He loves vegetables. He eats broccoli pretty much every day. And yeah, we've made Brussels sprouts in interesting ways and roast them up and use different seasonings and flavorings. And yeah, he loves it. I want to go back to your transformation here. Um, you know, we've we put up some before and after photos, uh, certainly at, at least at the beginning of the video. And I would encourage anybody to go look at uh, your Instagram page or YouTube channel as well, uh, at PlantFitMeg, by the way. Um, and, and just take a look and just see this dramatic transformation. It, it's just absolutely remarkable. Um, what were some of the biggest surprises that you found as you were on this healthier path and you saw your weight, uh, begin to drop? What really kind of caught you off guard in a positive way? Uh, so many things, so many things. I was able to have my health back, which was shocking and amazing and so exciting once I finally figured that out. It wasn't a linear path for me to go plant-based and immediately have my health be amazing and stay amazing the whole time. I, you know, went plant-based and had a few hiccups. I got into, you know, the vegan junk food and had, you know, my health issues flare up and things like that. And so once I actually came to a whole food plant-based oil-free diet and saw all the benefit and had lost the weight and regained my health, the, you know, the biggest win in all of this is regaining my health. And um, I have a new zest for life, I would say, um, that I didn't have in the past. I'm looking forward to the future. And I, I'm so thrilled that I'm able to share it with others and, that I started the YouTube channel and that other people are checking it out and getting information and getting inspired. And that's probably the biggest win in all of this. When you say that your uh, health issues flared back up when you were eating a lot of that processed food, what are you referring to? Um, so I had asthma, endometriosis, and I also dealt with chronic pain and fatigue on and off over the years. And so when I first went vegan and I started eating a plant-based diet, I lost 60 pounds in the first year and I was feeling fairly good. And I was taking medication for my asthma and, you know, I was still taking medication, but I was feeling pretty, pretty good. And once I started reincorporating processed foods and, oh, I'm curious to try, you know, this and that and getting into processed junk foods and things like that my health issues would start to flare up and then I would be more stressed out and then my sleep would be affected and it would just be a big snowball effect. And um, yeah, those issues would flare up. And once I got a handle on being whole food plant-based, really fully committing to it, being oil-free, then I was able to lose more weight and completely regain my health. I'm now off of all medications. So yeah, it's amazing. Oh, congratulations. Off of all of your meds. I mean, you really do. Do you wake up in the morning and still kind of have this just, I can't believe this is my life now? 
I'm so grateful every day. Honestly, I'm so, so grateful, so thankful that I found a plant-based lifestyle and that I can live this way forever and enjoy my life and not fret about food and fret about these health issues that I had in the past that don't haunt me anymore. And so what are some of the more fun things that you've discovered um, since uh, you've taken this healthier form um, and you have this this new body? For me, one of the things that I discovered was that I actually get cold now uh, when it's, you know, wintertime and it's chilly outside before I had all of this insulation. Is that something that you kind of experienced? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I feel cold pretty well all the time. It's very weird. In the past, I was someone who was just kind of comfortable most of the time. I wasn't super overheated or cold all the time. Now I'm definitely cold all the time. And that's weird. Uh, Shopping is very different. So in the past, trying to find bras that fit, trying to find clothing that fit and that I was comfortable in and that looked nice was more challenging. And now it's very, very easy. It's a lot easier. And just getting my mind around being a smaller person and being in a smaller body, I'm still getting used to. And uh, it's interesting how your brain takes time to sort of catch up. And yeah, so there's been a lot of a lot of changes like that. Uh, You mentioned also on your YouTube channel that you were really kind of shocked uh, at the fact uh, that that bra shopping for you now is so different. I mean, it's almost night and day um, for the women who are watching. And that is the vast majority of the audience. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So in the past, I, when I would exercise, I would need to wear two bras at a time or wear something that was really maximum support, heavy duty, you know, really intense And it was hard to find sometimes something that would work and that I would feel supported in. And it was expensive to find those options as well. And now it's just much, much easier. And it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, I really feel for people in larger bodies and I feel for my previous self who was in a larger body and people shouldn't have to, you know, have a hard time shopping and finding what they need. Um, but at the same time now, it's it's much easier for me. So it's nice that I I don't have that struggle anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I don't care what piece of clothing it is. Uh, it is absolutely uh, just an atrocity that people who are overweight, struggling with their weight, um, are punished um, because they have to pay more for clothes, you know, whether it's jeans, a shirt, a bra, whatever the case may be. I mean, you really do face this upcharge no matter what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess we'll, we'll kind of start to wind things down here. Um, would you say that by and large, there is this notion that when you eat a, especially a whole food plant-based diet, uh, it can be pricey. If you're an outsider, you're not really familiar with the whole idea of doing it. Like you have to be rich to do this. But now you're talking about being off all of your medication. You're talking about paying less for clothes. Um, and I assume fewer trips to the doctors as well. Um, how much would you say you've actually experienced? I don't want to call it a financial windfall or a financial gain, but have you found this to be a really expensive process or is everything kind of breaking even or are you? you're saving money at this point. 
I think even just in looking at our grocery bills from previous when we were eating the standard American diet and eating a lot of processed foods and a lot of takeout and restaurant meals and things like that, even just looking at those bills versus our groceries now, we're saving for sure because we're not buying those really high priced processed items that, you know, add to add to your bill. Um, and we're, we don't eat meals out very often and things like that. So yeah, I think even just comparing the grocery bill and the food costs, we're saving for sure. And like you said, on top of that with saving on clothing and saving on bra shopping and things like that as well. And we also tend to do a lot of thrift shopping now for clothing and stuff like that too. So that helps as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's so many, so many ways to save. And all of this adds up to more toys for the boy. So that's really <laughs> what this boils down to. Um, but if you could tell anything to your old self who was in her deepest, darkest time and really could not see that light at the end of the tunnel, if you could talk to that version of Meg today, what would your message be? I would say you have the power to make a change. You can do this. You just need to stick with it and be consistent and you'll get there. And if you're not where you want to be yet, it's just because you're not through your journey yet. You have to keep going and keep working on it and keep growing and keep learning and you'll get there. You will get there. And last question, uh, anybody who gets this chance now where they, they've reached their goal that they once thought was unachievable, I think gets to ask themselves this question. And you can look at it in one of two ways is, well, what do you want to do in the future? Or you still have your whole life ahead of you. So what do you want to be when you grow up? For me personally, what I want to do. Yes, yes. Oh. You. What, what, what do you want to do with this? You're so active on social media. You've got the YouTube channel. Like, Is this the space that you want to work in professionally or what are your goals now? Definitely. Yeah. So I want to keep going with YouTube and with sharing a plant-based diet and healthy lifestyle and showing people that it's easy and it's fun and you can include your kids. If you have kids, you can include them and have them be a part of it and um, that it's fun and it's doable and it's easy. My husband and I co-lead our plant-based group locally, and we're putting together nutrition workshops that we're hoping to host fairly shortly as well. And yeah, we just want to keep sharing the information and helping people out and inspiring others to take a look into this and give a plant-based diet a try and see if it helps you out the way that it helped me. Well, I will tell you this, you are an inspiration to so many people who are still struggling and looking for an answer, a solution that will work for them. And certainly you are living proof that a plant-based diet can indeed work and work wonders, not just to lose the weight, but to keep it off and more so beyond just the weight loss. I mean, all of the other conditions that you've been able to improve, you're off all of your medications now. That's so fantastic. And, and not to mention significantly lowering your risk of... Uh, having your cancer return. So I think all in all, you are doing a fantastic job. Thank you so much, Jack. All right. So here's the deal. Uh, if people want to find you, you are all over as Plant Fit Meg. You have a YouTube channel, which we have a link to in the description. You are on Instagram at Plant Fit Meg 
we have a link to that as well. So go give a follow there. And you're over on Facebook as Plant Fit Meg. So you really are just kind of all over trying to get this message out. Absolutely. I think it's so important. And I think I just got to a point in my journey and in my life where it's just too good not to share. Like I have to share it. I I need to put this information out there and to share my story of, you know, healing and losing weight and to show others that it's possible and that it can be really simple and really fun. And your YouTube channel is also a lot of fun. And uh, I, I will just encourage the viewers and the listeners right now to go and look at that if for no other reason, because you told a hilarious story about how you like to kind of dance in the kitchen or around the house with your husband and you guys used to do the hip bump. But the hip bump really, I mean, it's a lot different today versus when uh, you you were still 80 pounds heavier and used to send your husband flying across the room. So the story that you told on your YouTube channel about that is just phenomenal. So I want to just thank you for that because I was doubled over listening to that yesterday. You're welcome. I'm glad we gave you a good laugh from our real life dancing in the kitchen stories. That's just it. It is real life. And that's the best part about it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Plant Fit Men. Thank you so very much and congratulations for everything. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for everything you do with PCRM. It's amazing. You really have to check out Meg's before and after photos. It is a tale of two lives. Check her out on Instagram at PlantFitMeg, or if you scroll down to the episode notes, you will find a link to all of her social media accounts. She really is such a cool woman and a rockin' mom to boot. PlantFitMeg. I'll tell you, inspiration really is all over. It is. We just have to look for it. And I will bet you that you've already done something pretty incredible in your life. What is that something? Think about that. Think about that and then hold that thought and remember it if you're ready to make another change. A change to improve your health. But if you're doubting that you can have the same type of success as Meg, you don't think that you can do it. The thing is, you've already shown yourself that you have what it takes. That's what that thought is. You just have to remember that. You absolutely have what it takes to live that healthier life that you desire. The healthier life that you deserve. And if you want to help someone else see the light, help to change their life, maybe even save their life, you can join us in helping to make the world a healthier place by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or wherever shows are available. Because every time someone does that, it helps to bump the show up a little bit higher in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for that person in need of inspiration, in need of this critical information. It helps that person to find it. So let's get this information to them. 
And you can help us do that. You can start that right now by hitting that subscribe button and leaving a five-star rating. There's absolutely no cost to you. The only thing it will cost you is a few seconds of your time. And those few seconds can make all the difference in the world to someone in need of help. I want to thank you in advance. And that's going to do it for us today. A big show, a packed show, facts and inspiration. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for enlightening us about foods and migraines. And of course, once again, to Plant Fit Meg for inspiring us with her incredible story. So proud of her. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>